Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben, and this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a very special guest, Dr. Tassina from Southern California, and she's got a lot on her resume, so let's get right to it. And we're going to call her Tina. She likes to be called Tina, so welcome, Tina. Thank you. It's great to be here, Tony. Yes, and you've been doing this for 40 years, from what I understand, right? Yeah, actually 45. I've been around a long time. Okay. And you've written 17 books, so you have 17 books in different languages. I know that. Uh-huh. Um, so you've, um, and most, most of your books, from what I understand, are things that you've written from what you've learned from being a therapist. Yes. Yes. When, I, when I'm working with a client, with several clients, and they've got similar issues, and I develop ways to help them deal with the issues and I can't find a book on the market that says what I'm talking about, then I write my own. Well, that's, that's, that's a good attitude. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I wish I could do the same. I, I just sit and stare at a blank paper. So, um, Tina, we, we talked last week a little bit um, about grief and you had a lot of experience dealing with couples with or people with grief. And, and my own life, too. A lot of grief. A lot of grief. And, and I just went to a grief conference in Massachusetts for the last uh, three days over the weekend. And I heard a lot of different ways that people deal with grief and a lot of different ways that people and there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of different things that people uh, believe. So I'd like to hear your philosophy on dealing with grief. Well, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. This is my main philosophy. Everybody grieves a little differently. Our culture doesn't have a support system for grief. In, in major American culture, it's like, oh, okay, let's have the memorial or the funeral and then let's forget about it. And people are left. The grief doesn't really set in until after all the business is done. You know, you're busy after you lose somebody. If you're the one responsible, you're really busy with. Uh, arrangements for burial and and um, memorials and wills and trusts and all that sort of thing. And the grief doesn't really set in until you get past there. And in our culture, we kind of expect it's over by then. There are other cultures like the Jewish culture sits Shiva and tears their clothing and does all those things. And that that's a really good representation of grief. Other cultures do other things. They they um, have a, a thing in place. Um, the Day of the Dead is is all about grief in, in the Hispanic cultures. But here, we don't have much. So we have to create our own way of going through grief. I recommend to my clients, for instance, that they, if they've lost a loved one, they put up a picture and maybe a candle or little flower vase or something there where they can go and talk to that person when they need to. And it, it helps you go
go through the grief process, get all your feelings out. There's a lot of confusing feelings. We get angry, we get depressed, we get sad, of course. We expect, we expect the sadness, but we don't expect the anger. We don't expect the fear of how do I face life without this person? So um, there's a whole lot to go through and we have to go through it. We can't just put it away. I lost most of my family between the time I was 12 and I was 18. My dad was the last one to go. And then I was left all by myself at 18. And I had no clue what to do with the grief, none at all. And I just kind of packed it away for it was a good 10 years before I got around to dealing with it. And I had to go into therapy to figure out what to do with it. So is that it, how you it, got into therapy? That's how I got into therapy. I felt like I got into therapy for two reasons, to deal with my own grief and to try and help my mother who was depressed at a time when there wasn't much people could do about depression. And uh, I never got to help her, but I did get to deal with my own grief and help a lot of other people with it. I see. Now, you know, there's in America, you know, when somebody dies and, uh, and you have and you have a corporate job, uh, they give you like two weeks for bereavement. Right. And you haven't and even really started grieving by the time those two weeks are over, because at first you're numb. At first you go into shock. And and as I said, you're busy with all the stuff you have to do. But the grief, the emotional part of the grief hasn't really even set in yet by the time those two weeks are over. Yes, I know in other countries, I know in, in England, I think they gave you three months and in other cultures as much as six months, which is uh, <clears throat> some people in this country would say that was excessive, except for if the other person's having the grief, you might not think so, you know, yeah. especially... With, uh, with what I deal with mostly is parents who have lost a child from substance use disorder. So we have a lot of uh, drug overdoses. And I know in California, you have the same problem. Mm -hmm. and yeah, we so, have it yeah. here too. And um, some of the things that people say to you, like, you know, uh, after like a month, aren't you over it yet? Yeah. You know, I mean, and, yeah. and then they well, say, I he's know. In a, well, he's in a better place. Well, you know, all those things about just get over it. They're just ways to say get over it. And what they're really saying is, I don't know what to do to help you with your grief. So I want you to get over it so I don't have to feel helpless. That's that's a good point. You know, and then they have, um, uh, you know, another one is, you know, you've got to move on. Mm -hmm. And that's another statement that people that don't know what what they're talking about like to state. And, yeah. you know, how would you tell your client to respond to that? So you've got to move on? Yeah. Oh, well, I would say, no, I'm not moving on. I'm moving through. And it's going to take me some time. But, you know, you were talking about parents who lost children to drug overdoses and things like that. That is really complicated grief. The parents have guilt to deal with. Whether they're guilty or not, they're going to feel guilty. They have, they're angry and, they're, they, and they've, been, they've been through a lot before the loss because being around, you know, having a family member who's addicted is not an easy thing. 
often they're financially devastated along with emotional devastation. So that's a lot to work through. You're not going to work through that two weeks. No way. You're, it, it takes time and it takes a support system. It takes people willing to listen. I mean, grief needs a witness. You, somebody has to listen. You, you need, when you're grieving, you need somebody to listen to what you have to say. And at times, I think the person who can listen is the person who passed on. That's why I have my client set up a picture and a candle and those kinds of things. So they can tell the lost one everything they're feeling, how angry they are, how sad they are, how much hope they had for this person's life, especially parents with children. You know, they you have all these dreams about your kid's wedding and your kid's graduation and your kid's having kids and all those things, and that all gets lost. And so that all needs to be expressed. That's right. And I would say that um, the other big factor is um, you have um, you've been dealing with this addiction problem with the person that passed on. And now all of a sudden that whole lifestyle of dealing with the addiction uh, is also gone. So there's, there's two things that that technically you'd be grieving. You'd be grieving the loss of the loved one at the same time. You're grieving your, your whole way of living, you know, that that's also gone at the same time. And right. And, and trying uh, to rebuild something new is not easy. It takes time and it takes, and especially when you're devastated to start with, I use the uh, hurricane metaphor with my clients in grief. It's just like, you know, a hurricane came through and, uh, shut your house down to sticks. I mean, it just, you know, devastated everything. And you have to pick through the rubble and find out what's in there that's still valuable to you. And then you also have to rebuild. You have to clean away all the rubble and you have to rebuild. And that's a time consuming process. It just, you just can't get through it right away. There's no way it takes time. That's correct. And then, you know, and then even with the time, like, um, I'm nine years out now since my son passed away mm -hmm. and um, he's still with me every day. Yes. I'm just able to, to carry him with me a little bit better than I could, you know, in the beginning, you know, in right. the beginning it was totally different, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I also found by being busy and putting his, not to let his death go to waste by mm -hmm. taking, by having energy into warning other parents of of opioid use disorder and um mm -hmm. and making sure that his death didn't got didn't go in vain and yeah that's a really wonderful productive thing to do with your grief there's a lot of things mothers against drug dri drunk driving um the sandy hook project you know all of those wonderful organizations that are trying to change society for the better all came out of grief. That's a wonderful thing to do with your grief is to put it into doing something productive. And my dad died in 1962. He's still with me. I still talk to him. I still ask him for help when I need perspective on something. And I feel like I get it, you know, so that doesn't go away that that part of the person being with you. And, and I think that's one of the gifts of grief is that you get to carry that person 
in your heart with you. And if you keep that relationship active by talking to that person, um, it, it just enriches your life, I think. Yes, I, I have a memory chest mm -hmm. in all of my son's valuable things like his football uniform, his baseball uniform and other things mm -hmm. are, are, are in the memory chest. But on top of it, I have six pitches, you know, and I start from when he was about age three all mm -hmm. the way up until he was age 35. Mm -hmm. And so every night I, I always turn the light on in that room and I say good night to him. And I don't, some nights I say goodnight to one or the other. And I had an artist draw a picture of his, of a, of him, of him. And she did it in, uh, with all different colors to express his emotion that she felt that she got from the photograph I sent her. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty amazing thing to have to look at every, every night. So I, so I never forget, you know, I just, but, you know, I still go on through the day and do my thing. Um, and so, and, and actually talking to you now is, is part of what, part of my grieving approach as well. Absolutely. But I want to help others. I want to help others. And I, and I, and I know, so do you, do you encourage people to be in a grief group, you know, if, as well as visiting with you? Yes, I think it's very helpful. Either if you've got other friends of your own, you can have an informal grief group, which is friends of your own who've been through a similar process. And, you know, you can all get together and talk about that. There's a movement called the Death Cafe, D-E-A-T-H, Death Cafe, which is, um, you can look it up online. And there are groups organized. And they usually, sometimes they meet in person, but a lot of them just meet by phone or Zoom or something. Um, and they're, they get together to talk about death and grief and loss and, um, you know, how to handle it. I think it's very, very helpful to have other people who understand and people who aren't going to say, get over it and are going to, you know, help you understand what's going on and say, oh, yes, that happened to me, too. You know, one of my friends has butterflies that come around that remind her of her mother and um, she heard from other people, oh, yes, we have that too. You know, when this certain flower shows up or this particular bird starts to sing, that feels like a message from my lost person. Those are incredibly helpful. I think talking to other people, most hospitals have grief groups. Um, they sponsor grief, grief groups. So that's where I would go if I were, you know, wherever you are, I don't know where you are in your community, but you can call the hospital and see if they have a group grief group or they know where one is located. You can look up death cafes online or uh, the very best thing I think is to get together a group of your friends that have been through it too. Often people, right. especially in your situation, because of the 12 step programs and all those things, you, you get, to know a group of people who are going through similar difficulties. So that's very yeah, helpful. They, the conference I was just at, there were over 200 men and women who had lost a child due to substance use disorder. So I, yeah. I, I made connection with at least 10 people that I'll, I'll start doing emails and so forth with. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the um, what about this? I had one of the gentlemen that I met last week um, since his, he had two boys die, one, at, one in 2017 and one about three months ago. And and his brother, I mean, his, his own brother and his nephews um, refused to come to the funeral. And they, because they don't understand, they think he's a was a terrible parent because his two boys died of an overdose. And um, how would you approach this guy? I mean, how, what would you say to him? And because uh, he asked me the same question, what would you say to him about relatives who now shun you because your child dies? Well, we don't choose our families. I think right. we have a a family of the heart which are people, some of them might be in our genetic family, but most of them usually aren't. People that we really can connect with and be emotional with and share with. And then there's the genetic family, which is really kind of a an accident. I mean, we don't get to choose that. We don't, they don't always understand us. We kind of expect that families should be there to understand us. And some families are. But some fam- many, many families aren't. I mean, I see it all the time in my practice that the family can't be relied on. Or the anger part of grief comes up and they get angry at each other instead of understanding that they're angry at the loss. And, you know, we I've done a lot of dealing with families who are having problems in with the will. Everybody's fighting about grandma's dining room table or something some silly thing like that and um usually it's the people who are the most alienated from the lost person that have the most anger and um and you know they're they're angry because they couldn't connect they they've lost their chance to connect one of the things that grief does is it puts the relationship into perspective. I mean, there's there's no more developing the relationship in in life that's going on, that's done. And the relationship is in perspective and you get to look at the whole thing. And that can bring up a whole lot of different feelings. Like I said, guilt and anger and grief and fear. And um, of course the love is there too. That's why why you care so much it's why why you're angry because somewhere in there is love for the person that you lost even though things may have been difficult for a long time so it just um, it's a big big package yes yeah, somebody was talking at one of the sessions that the amount of grief you have if you have a large amount of grief that means you showed that you actually love the person an awful lot there was a relationship between how much love you have for that person and how much grief you're now experiencing. And uh, I agree. You, you agree with I, that philosophy? I agree with that. I think that the depth of the relationship is um, comparable to the depth of the grief. And, you know, and, and there's also, you know, sometimes we grieve for people before they're gone. For instance, if there's a, one of those, awful long drawn out diseases that you know is going to end in death and the person's just deteriorating or um, Alzheimer's where they start to leave before they're 
physically gone. We grieve while they're still alive. Sometimes, say in the instance of somebody who's dying of a cancer or something, you get to grieve with the person who's going. They're grieving for the loss of their life too. And um, sometimes a lot of the grieving gets done before the person is actually gone. But when you haven't had a chance to do that, you, all of that still remains to be done after the person's gone. Yeah. How do you how do you uh, uh, how do you talk to people who the last conversation they had with the person who died, like if it was a parent with a person who had substance use, and the last conversation was not good. Mm -hmm. They had a big argument, mm -hmm. and that night they die. Mm -hmm. um, how do you cope with? How does someone cope with the, that remembering that last thing? And instead of saying, I love you, they may have said, I hate you or get out of the house. or mm -hmm. You know, I can't mm -hmm. deal with you the way you are. And then mm -hmm. the next thing within 12 hours, they're gone. How, how does, how do you cope with that? Well, you know, there has to be forgiveness in there. Yeah. You need to find a way to forgive the person for behaving in such a way that, you know, that you were, your response was anger and you have to forgive yourself for having the anger and get back to the love. And again, that's a process. You, I very often encourage my clients to talk to the person. We put an empty chair. If they're in the room with me, we put an empty chair in the room and they talk to the chair and put that person in the chair and say everything they haven't said or everything they wish they had said or um, take back what they said that they sorry they said. And that helps a lot. It just can, resolves feelings. So it's, it's they can all apologize. About, yeah, you can apologize. You can say what you didn't say. That, that's a big part of yeah. grieving is saying what, all the things that you didn't get a chance to say or you weren't aware enough to say at the time or whatever. Um, the unsaid things are really important. That's, that's quite nice to say that. And do you believe that a parent who loses a child will, will take that empty hole right till they, till they die? You feel it'll be there for. Yeah. I don't think it'll be as empty though. I think like you said, you still carry your son with you. It's he's there. It's not an empty hole. Um, he's there. Right. It's just what's gone is the future. What's gone is what, you know, all your hopes when, when someone dies, all your hopes and dreams for them die too. So, like I said, if with your children, it's, it's about all the things that you wanted to participate in as they went through life, you know, getting married, getting, graduating from school, buying a house, having children, all those things you you were dreaming about, we, we do that. When we have children, we dream about all the things that are going to happen in the future. And then if, they, if their life gets cut short, then those dreams never get to happen. So they have to be grieved also. I, um, you know, my, I was so young when my dad died. I was only 18. I rode him into my wedding. You know, put a place in the wedding where I acknowledge my father. Um, every time I 
graduated from school or every time I publish a new book, it's I go through. I have to talk to him and say, you know, I wish you could be here. I think you'd be proud of me. And I'm, I'm, I miss that seeing you being proud of me. Those are, those are active presences in our lives all the way through life. So I don't think it's a big hole. I think they're there. It just feels like they, you know, they're not there in the flesh anymore. That's what we're missing. Absolutely. Um, you've written a lot of books on a lot of different subjects. Um, now that you're a therapist and you, you see patients all the time, right? Every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, you told me you're never going to retire because you love what you work, love yep. what you do. Yeah. I think they're going to yeah. pull me out of here feet first. Yeah. Uh, tell the audience how old you are, if you'd like. Yeah. I'm, I'll be 80 in January. Okay. So you definitely had a lot of experience, but you're, you're 80 going on 60, 60. So that's the way, <laughs> Thank you. That's the way I look at it because I've <laughs> talked to you on the phone. And so I know yeah. what you're, what is that? What are some of the biggest problems that people have that you, you sit in therapy with? Where, where is that? Where are we at in this country now with the, with, with people in general, you know, what is the big, I know you're in Southern California. It's probably the same as it is in Massachusetts or Rhode Island. Probably um, about the same. People are the same pretty much everywhere. And they go through the same issues. You know, grief is very similar for all different people. And um, I just think what we're missing in this country mostly, because we're so blessed. I mean, we have so much. We have food to eat and, and rich lives and connections and, you know, peace mostly in this country. When we're, we, there's a lot of violence we're dealing with too on an individual basis. But we are very blessed and um, we need, I think gratitude really helps. I think being grateful for, for instance, with your son, for the wonderful things you had with him, you had, there were good times too, as you know, as well as the bad times of the drugs and, and um, acknowledging our gratitude is really helpful. Yeah, I agree with that, and I'm in a I'm a member of a sangha group, which is a meditation group, mm-hmm. and and um, we always we have this circle in the beginning for what are we grateful for, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting. Sometimes we have a new person, and they can't think of anything that they're grateful for, you know. And then I you know I I lead the group sometime, and I said, well, think about sight. Are you grateful for the fact that you can see? And there's a lot of people who can't see. Are you grateful for the fact that you can hear? Mm-hmm. You know, and, breathing you know, so is a good one. I'm breathing. breathing my heart. I just I had a heart procedure this year, which was kind of a miracle because they just went through my veins and stuck in a new heart valve, and there was no pain or cutting or sewing or anything. Um, but you know, I've been very consciously grateful about my heart beating since that. We, we are walking miracles, all of us. I mean, if you, if you, I've studied a lot about how the brain works. It's so miraculous and nobody really understands exactly how it all happened. I mean, we can 
go through the evolutionary things and the genetics and all that sort of thing, but it's, it's, it's magic. And um, it's a miracle and our brains are a miracle. Our bodies are a miracle. I mean, the fact you, you mentioned seeing eyes are a phenomenal miracle and, you know, to see them develop from the very earliest organisms you know, that had these little light sensitive dots on them to the very complicated and, and amazing eyes we have now. Those are, those are all miracles. We're just walking miracles. And the people that we lose were walking miracles too. And uh, some of them didn't appreciate it. Some of them didn't understand, but there's, that doesn't eliminate the fact that they were a walking miracle. We all are, and we're surrounded by miracles every day. And if we pay attention to that, that helps a lot with whatever we're having to go through. It's difficult. Yeah, that's, um, it, it is, it's amazing when you stop and think about it. And, but most people are so busy, they don't stop to reflect, to see what they should be grateful for. You can be grateful for the living children that you have and grateful for the parents you've had and grateful for the friends that you may have or the neighbor across the street that that takes care of, watches your house when you're not there and does all mm -hmm. these other nice niceties, you know, that, you, mm -hmm. you know, uh, some people have neighbors they don't even talk to, you know, yeah. so it's unfortunate, but, but that's that's what happens. The best protection is being close to your neighbors. That's what's going to protect your house better than any other security system you could have. Nosy neighbors are very, very helpful in, in yeah, protecting yeah. your property. That's right. They know when something's right or wrong going on uh, in the house across the street, you know. That's right. That's right. So, when we travel, we, we, we have a little one block long street here that we live on. And when when we're going to travel, we have to let all our neighbors know that our house sitter is going to be there. They all know him by now, so it's not so critical. But, you know, otherwise somebody would call the police when they saw this stranger in, in and out of our house, which I think is a wonderful thing. It is that you can have people that you can rely on and trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you're also a, you, you're a couples therapist, too, from what I mm -hmm. gathered from yeah. the books you've written. Individuals and, uh, and couples, right. So can you give us some advice? We're, we're looking for, for advice for the masses today. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I have a lot of things, but I think mainly listening and talking. I say the three, you know, they talk about three little words. The three most important words in any relationship are tell me more. Because whatever's going on, if you're not getting along, if something's going on, let's say maybe there's a drug problem, since that's a focus that you're talking about. Um, invite that person to talk to you. I mean, what we what our knee-jerk reaction tends to be critical, tends to be, you can't do it that way, don't do this, this is wrong, because we get scared and we're trying to protect them. But that doesn't really work. What does work is saying, tell me more. Tell me what's going on with you. Tell me how I can help. Tell me what's happening. Um, and to open up that communication, when I have couples who are fighting, I get them to 
physically touch each other, hold their, hold hands and talk. And, and I make them listen. I have to enforce it. So some of my clients, couples clients call me the playground monitor because I stop them from doing the, you know, great grammar school fighting thing that they do with each other and get them to listen. And that makes all the difference in the relationship. Just understanding we can, somebody can say something. I don't like that, for instance. And we have a knee jerk reaction and we get all defensive and get upset. But if you say, tell me more, what is it you don't like? You may find out by the time they're finished explaining what they actually meant that you're in agreement about the whole thing. At the very least, you're going to find out you understand what they're thinking, which helps. And that, you know, that understanding, that opening up to people and, and being connected. And under, I'm, my clients who are in couples, you know, if you found somebody you can share a life with, that's an amazing thing. There's so many people who are longing for that. So you need to honor it by actually sharing with that person and not shutting down and not getting defensive and not lashing out. And, you know, that requires emotionally growing up and it's not easy, but it's well worth it. It's, um, it's incredibly important to listen. Well, I found as I've gotten older that it's the, the arguing kind of thing or the is totally gone out of my life. Mm-hmm. It's much more, you know, getting along is to me, you know, if somebody's all upset, I just let them go go off. You know, do what you got to do, and especially employees, they're they're upset about something, and I, I let them I, I let them talk. I let them just keep going until mm-hmm. they until they calm down enough so that I can give them my two cents. Right. You know, it's very important. So it's really uh, important. It's what works. It's what works in relationships. I mean, you can waste an awful lot of time being defensive, being angry, being in reaction. You know, couples can get reactive to each other. They can go through the same uh, frustrating argument process enough that when one of them says like two words that are the beginning of that argument process, the whole thing is off and running. They're all in reaction. And what I told some of my clients yesterday is, you don't get to be yourself when you're all upset and defensive and reacting and all that. You're not really you. You're all these this collection of resentment and frustration and whatever that you've built up. If you stop and just let it go on for a while, let it calm down. I teach my clients to do a timeout. You know how in basketball they make a tee with their hands and when they do that, all the action on the court stops, right? So I teach my clients to do that. I teach when things start to get heated between them, I have them make a T with their hands. And then the rule is everybody has to stop. And then they take 10 or 15 minutes apart. So just calm down and settle down. And then they have to, whoever called the timeout has to come back and say, okay, let's talk about this now. And they talk about it on a different level and it uh-huh. helps a lot. Sometimes people have to do the timeout 10 times in one argument 
before they actually get around to talking if they've gotten very reactive to each other. But after a while, they learn to stay calm and and actually talk it out, think about it. And that 10 or 15 minute break gives them a chance to think about, you know, what am I so upset about? What is, why is this so important? Why is it so important that this spoon, dirty spoon was left in the sink or something? Yep, that's it. Well, Tina, that's pretty interesting, all the things you say. And I, you know, I, I, the, the timeout is probably a great idea. I know it works with five-year-olds. So if, it, if you do it, you know, it's time for a timeout, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they understand what it is pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So well, we all have um, a five-year-old within us. So it's that five-year-old is the one that's doing the fighting. Because the, like you said, as you get older, you realize it's just a giant waste of your time to fight and argue and resist. I, I tell my clients to be irresistible. Don't resist whatever's going on. Just let it happen. It's not, you don't have to, just because you're not objecting to it doesn't mean you're going along with it. Just observe it for a while and find out what it is. And when you see what it what it's all about, then there's nothing there to resist. It's just two people with maybe slightly different ideas, but still two people who want to get along with each other. Yeah, it's much more benefit to getting along than not. Yeah, and it's, it's much more productive time. The whole fighting thing is total waste of time. Sometimes I... You know, I'll, I'll let my clients bicker with each other for a few minutes in a session and then I'll stop them and I'll say, what are you what are you doing right now? And they both look like stunned because they're not doing anything. They're just reacting and their brains aren't engaged and they're all upset. And I'll say, is it working? Well, no, it's not working. How many times have you said that? nasty thing you just did. How many times have you said that? I don't know. Many, many, many times. Has it worked? No. Why don't you try something different? You know, and then the lights start to go on. Then the brain gets engaged again. But um, when, when we're run by this back part of the brain, the emotional part, we're not really being ourselves. That's, that's the lizard brain. You know, we're not being ourselves and we're not doing anything productive we're just filling time with a lot of unpleasant interaction yeah um how many times when you're doing couples do you find that one of the couples has now got an interest in another person and that's reason why that there's all of a sudden they're doing a comparison between the person they're living with and a person they'd like to be living with is that, a, is that a big factor in, in, in these yeah, couple sure relationships? It sure it is. That's always a factor in infidelity. And, um, you know, the fantasy is always more attractive than the reality. So yeah. you, have to, you have to kind of get them back to earth and remember that the real-life person that you're dealing with is a real-life person that's got, they've got, issues and problems and wonderful parts and not so wonderful parts the fantasy person that's at more of a distance and maybe they only see them once in a while that's it's very easy when you're doing that to see that as wonderful and and what you've got at home is not so wonderful 
because you're seeing one from the inside out and the other one you're just seeing this outside projection of, of your fantasies. But the truth is, if you leave the partner that you're with and you get together with this other partner, it's probably not going to go anywhere. As soon as that gets real, you're going to have the same problems you had in the original relationship. So come back to the original relationship and sort that out. And then if you decide that you shouldn't be together, if you mutually decide you shouldn't be together, you can do something about that. And it's much more honorable and it's much less devastating to people. But when you let that fantasy brain take over, you know, drugs are a lot about that, about that fantasy brain. They, they make reality go away and you can live in your fantasies for a little while. Of course, then they produce this other kind of reality that's far worse than a regular, you know, they, a lot more pain in a drug-filled reality than there is in a non-drug-filled reality. But they don't see that. You know, they just see the, I have this pain inside and this, whatever it is, sometimes it's an activity like gambling or sex or something, and sometimes it's a drug. Um, but it makes me feel better momentarily. Sometimes it's something like we're, modern problems now are people getting addicted to gaming online. So oh, yeah. that's going to be the biggest problem in this country now that yeah, yeah. gambling so, is 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 um, is is legal. And mm -hmm. I mean, you can't watch something on TV without having a FanDuel commercial or or DraftKings or something like that. MGM. Yeah sports and um right. you know i've seen and, them so much i memorize i know them all <laughs> yeah they could you can repeat them back which is probably sad that we can do that but we all can um yeah but I mean, so so anything that absorbs your consciousness and takes you away from the reality feels like a relief momentarily but eventually it's going to create more problems than you had to begin with you're better off to stick with the problems you have and see what you can do to improve them. You know, if things aren't going well between you and your partner or you and your child or you and another family member, um, see what you can do to make it work. One of the things I like to tell my clients is do whatever works and, and see how, see what that is. Give up your, your stuff about, oh, I'm, I never, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that. Way. Do whatever works and see then once you've got it working, if you're willing to live like that. If you're not, then you've at least learned something. But often what we think is going to be a problem turns out not to be a big problem. The big problem is the resistance to the problem. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, we so often so often we make our own problems, you know, like resentment. If we resent stuff, that creates, it's like rust. I, I say it's like rust in a relationship. Resentment is the only thing that can destroy love. Anger won't destroy love. Fear won't destroy love. But resentment will. Resentment eats away at it. And after a while, it can be gone. So don't hang on to that stuff. You know, talk about it, get it out, say, I'm really upset about this or that or the other thing. Let's talk about it. And let's resolve it. We, my husband and I, we've been together 42 years now. Um, 
we had to learn how to do that, how to say, you know, that hurt my feelings and I need to talk to you about that. And then we find out that the other person had no intention of hurting our feelings. It was just something they said or, you know, they were living another relationship, one they had with their father or mother or something when they were six and putting it, projecting it out on us or whatever. When we get that all cleared up, the resentment is gone. So it's, it's whether it's grief or whether it's your relationship with people or whether it's your re own relationship with yourself, a lot of problems begin there. Um, it's best to dig into it and sort it out and figure out what's going on. If you want to live a life of peace, that's how you do it. You don't do it by running away from the upsetting stuff. You do it by getting into the upsetting stuff. Okay. Um, on, on the books that you've written, you wrote one book that says, I think it, it is how to be married and married or, and how to be a couple and still be free. Yeah, that was the first one, how to be a couple and still be free. And um, what is what does that mean? How does how does that how do can you get give me a little idea of that book? Yeah, it's basically about how to let go of your role expectations. You know, I'm the husband, I'm the wife, whatever that is. I'm the male, I'm the female. We're two males together, we're two females together. Whatever it is, let go of those role expectations and figure out what you really want. Say 100% of what you want. And it's got a, it's all about cooperation, how to work together. So I want you and me to both have what we want, to, to do all of our interactions with that attitude. I want you and me to both have what we want. And then you build a relationship that may not look anything like you think relationships are supposed to look like, but it'll work for you and your partner. And that's what counts because every relationship is a whole new thing. No two people exactly like you two have ever been in this relationship before. And there's no written set of rules for it. There is a written set of rules, but they don't work. And, um, there, what you have to do is you have to work it out between you. And that's what the first few years of a relationship are about is figuring out how I can be me and you can be you and we can still be together. Because if so I have to, if I have to give up me to be with you, then that's no life really. Right. You know, I was going to say, so it's okay for me to be the cook dinner and it's okay for her to mow the lawn. Absolutely. If that's what turns you on, do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had an aunt so far ahead of her time. Um, my mother's sister was an osteopath. And she was one of the few women in the whole country in the. Well, she graduated about 1920. And, you know, there weren't any women doing it then. And her husband was a writer quite a well-known writer and he was the house husband and she was the major breadwinner because you know writers don't earn a whole lot of money so he she did the cooking but he did all the housekeeping and upkeep and he was her secretary for her business and and she had a practice she had a house with a uh 
consulting office in it and she had a practice in the home and and they did they had a totally topsy-turvy relationship um and i was young at the time you know i was in college and um when i first really connected with them because they lived here and we lived in upstate new york so we didn't get to see them very much but when i went to college i made a connection with them and um that just really opened my eyes that you don't have to do, do it the way people say you have to do it. The woman doesn't have to do this role and the man do that role. And, um, but you have to work it out. It's going to be different. The two of you are going to be different from any other couple on the planet because you're two individual people. You're each different from anybody else on the planet and you have to work out. So the whole book is about, how to solve those problems and how to work together rather than struggle with each other. It's a very little book, not very big book, but it's pretty effective. Well, that's good. So I wanted to ask you, can, um, <clears throat> can people buy your books on Amazon? Oh yeah. I have a website at pinatasina.com, P-I-N-A-T-E-S-S-I-N-A.com. And it lists all my books and their tables of contents and that sort of thing. It also has more than 200 articles that I've written that you can get for free. There's a whole therapy course in there if you if you want to, if you look want at to it. read them all. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's connected to my blog and my newsletter and you know my Facebook page and all those things. So everything comes from that hub. You can find everything in the the book page. If you click on the link, we'll take you to Amazon where you can buy the book. Okay. And out of on the grief subject, which book do you recommend the most? Well, I, the one I'm writing right now, which is called The Gifts of Grief, but won't be out for a year or so. Um, there's a book called It Ends With You, Grow Up and Out of Dysfunction, which is really helpful for understanding, you know, how you were taught. As at a very young age before you had any judgment about what was going on and what you absorbed from your family. And we go through all the things. How did your family deal with time? How did your family deal with money? How did your family deal with food? And um, sort that all out so you can figure out what you want as opposed to what your family thought you should want. And that helps. And it's got a good section in there on grief. I have a book called The Real 13th Step, um, Developing Autonomy Beyond the 12-Step Programs, Developing Independence and Autonomy Beyond the 12-Step Programs, which is really helpful for, I wrote it because I was dealing with a lot of people in the 12 steps. And there was so, the 12 steps, I'm a fan of the 12 steps. I think they're very effective when people can follow them, but there's so much of life they don't cover. You know, and for example, I had a client who had been an alcoholic and he, he got sober through the 12 steps, but then he, he started drinking when he was 14. So then he was effectively a 14 year old in a 35 year old body. You know, he didn't know how to deal with women. He didn't know how to really how to behave well at work. He, there was a whole bunch. He didn't know how to organize his life, you know, because alcohol just prevents or drugs or whatever you're on that prevents emotional growth and intellectual growth. And you're just stuck there wherever you started. 
So um, that goes through the grieving process too. Most of my books touch on the grieving process to a certain extent, because it's been so important in everything. Um, I have two books for women, the 10 smartest decisions a woman can make before 40 and the 10 smartest decisions a woman can make after 40. Both of those have a lot about grief in them because there's a lot about grief in our all of our lives. But now I've decided to put it all in one book and that'll be out in about a year. So after you've done all of these interviews and you've done the, you know, this, the, uh, the therapy sessions, you sit down and write books. Do you ever watch television? <laughs> yeah, I do. Actually, I know writing is hard for a lot of people, but it's never been difficult for me. Therapy is a seat of your pants process, right? I, I don't, before I go into a counseling session with somebody, I have no clue what they're going to bring up. Even though we might have been talking for weeks, they might have something brand new in their lives that day. So I have to just be there and deal with whatever's coming up. So I develop a lot of new techniques right in the moment yeah. to help people deal with things. And when that kind of piles up into a collection of things about a certain subject, like the real 13th step about all the other stuff about addiction that the 12 steps don't cover. Um, then I just put it down in a book. It's pretty easy for me. I write like I'm talking to my client. So um, it comes very easily and I do it kind of randomly during when I have free moments. But yes, after a certain point at night, when my brain is kind of worn out, that's when I go and watch TV for a while. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering what makes you tick a little bit there. You know, do you watch yeah. you watch uh, action stories or mysteries? or? Well, what? no, I, I like relationship stuff. I, even if I watch detective stories, like I watch the ones that have a psychological component, because that's what that's what turns me on, how watching how people tick. And, and you know, there's um, there's several of them. There's one on PBS called Annika about this detective, female detective who's from Norway and has a lot of angst. But, it, you know, it's very psychologically motivated and she looks into the psychological motivation of all of the suspects she has and all that. So that to me is fascinating. I guess it would be, you know, I'd like, I'm, I actually speaking of that, I like Wolanda, which was mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. Swedish detective thing. That, mm -hmm. uh, Kenneth Branagh was the star of that. And yeah, I remember great that. actor, great actor doing a, kind of like a, an hour long TV type show, you know, so mm -hmm. But it was always the who done it kind of thing or why they done it, you know, so mm -hmm. that that sort of thing. So Yeah, it's um, endlessly fascinating. Human beings are fascinating and what makes them tick and and how they go wrong and all that is fascinating. I live in a TV series, you know. I'm always I live in a soap opera. I'm always getting all these soap opera kinds of issues dumped in my lap when I talk to clients. Well you but you retain it though, because when you talk to them again and again, I mean how many, on average, how many times do you see the same client? Well, it depends on what kind of issues they have. You know, if a client has a few minor issues about how to get organized or something, that goes very quick. But if they have really deep-seated seated issues, like addiction is one of the hardest, um, I can see them for years. I usually see them 
once a week, right in the very beginning till we get some stuff established. And then they go to every couple of weeks and every three weeks. And then I've had clients come back to me that I haven't seen for 10 years and maybe their mother died or something like that happened. And they come back to get help with that. And I'm like the family doctor, you know, I know all the history. I know what's been going on. They don't have to start from, from day one and explain the whole thing to me. They just have to catch me up to where they are now. I I understand that. I get that for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Tina Tassina, am I saying it right? You're saying it exactly right. Okay. We really appreciate you giving us the time today to be sort of like a patient. and You're the therapist today with us. And uh, many people in the greater Boston area have been listening, will be listening to you. I really appreciate that. And you can go on to Tina Tassina, is it dot com? Dot to get, com, yep. All right. If you want to see the list of the books that Tina has written, and they're all pretty interesting. So I'm sure you'll, if you've got an issue and something and you'd really like to sit down with Tina, well, you maybe can't do it physically, but you can read her, read her books and get well, I do the sessions idea. by phone. You do so, okay. Mm-hmm. So we can do we can do telemedicine kind of thing or mm-hmm. teletherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that would work. So you can reach her. I'm sure from the website you have a con- way of being contacted, right? I do. Okay. And now uh, this is Tony Lagrecker, and this has been the Courage to Hope. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Tina gives a lot of people a lot of courage, and that's what they need to get through to have hope in the rest of their life. We really appreciate you, Tina. 